Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. Today, I'll be speaking to the six shortlisted authors for the 2023 Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction, ahead of the winner and prize ceremony on the 16th of November. The prize aims to recognise and reward the best of non-fiction and is open to authors of any nationality. Some of these thought-provoking and inspiring titles look at the forgotten stories of key historical periods. Nothing and no one who passes through this collision chamber of revolution in the middle of the 19th century is the same when they come up. It's very much a gap, an absence in China today. And yet the Cultural Revolution is present underneath everything. And the role of music and dance as witness to it. It's an approach to music as culture's memory. The book says it's not just we who remember music, it's also music that remembers us. Whilst others tackle more current issues, the climate crisis and institutional failures within Britain's National Health Service. I think I got to the point where I felt I couldn't not write this book because I had all this information in my head and I felt that it was a story that had to be told. You're listening to Meet the Writers. John Valiant's acclaimed award-winning non-fiction books The Golden Spruce and The Tiger were national bestsellers. Valiant has received the Governor-General's Literary Award, British Columbia's National Award for Canadian Non-Fiction, the Wyndham Campbell Literature Prize and the Pearson Writers Trust Prize for Non-Fiction. His new book, Fire Weather, A True Story from a Hotter World, is on the Bailey Gifford Prize shortlist. Through the story of this apocalyptic conflagration in Fort McMurray in Alberta, Canada, the book delves into the intertwined histories of the oil industry and climate science, going into the past and the future of our ever hotter, more flammable world. John, congratulations. Tell us about the original blaze that lit the spark for your book, Fireweather. I sure can. Fort McMurray, Alberta is... 600 miles north of the U.S. border, and it's, a, it's an anomaly in North America. It's a city of a, almost 100,000 temporary and permanent workers who are devoted solely to extracting bitumen from the earth. And bitumen is a tar-like substance that if you heat it up enough, you can turn it into something resembling petroleum. So this city is engaged in this task in the middle of the boreal forest, which is one of the most flammable landscapes in the Northern Hemisphere. And on May 3rd, 2016, the temperature, again in Northern Alberta, this is almost in the subarctic, hit 33 Celsius, and the relative humidity dropped to 11%. And for perspective, 11% is a typical humidity for Death Valley in Southern California. So this combination of record-breaking temperatures record-breaking low humidity and a naturally flammable landscape resulted in an absolutely catastrophic fire that rolled into the city around lunchtime on May 3rd. And the um, heat coming off this fire into the city was about 500 Celsius. So that's hotter than Venus. And it superheated the neighborhoods to explosive temperatures so that when the fire arrived, they burnt to the ground at about five minutes per house. 
it was an event that, needless to say, firefighters were completely unprepared for and really had no way of, of combating. And so you take that story and then you take us on a journey. Walk us through what your book is saying. Well, I really wanted to look at what I call 21st century fire. You know, we have changed our climate through the relentless burning of fossil fuels starting around the Industrial Age, the Industrial Revolution in Britain uh, around 1750. And we've burnt extraordinary amounts of coal, petroleum and natural gas since then. And it has resulted in a, in a buildup of heat trapping gases around our entire planet. And with that warmth, that added heat comes conditions that enable fire to burn more broadly and more intensely than it ever has in human times. So what I wanted to follow was looking at how fire burns differently now. You know, most of us feel like we're we're living in the same world, but there are some noticeable changes. And, and one of the more graphic and extreme changes is in how fire impacts our communities. And we've seen that, you know, to a horrifying effect in Greece this summer, in Hawaii this summer, all across Canada, which had the worst fire season in its entire history. So I wanted to understand uh, the dynamics of that, not just the, the chemical dynamics, fire is a chemical reaction, but the social dynamics, the political dynamics, and the historical dynamics. And it really comes back to our obsession with fire in all its forms, including petroleum-generated fire. So tell us more then about the oil industry and climate science and how they intertwine and what that means for the future of our planet. Well, right now, our global economy is about 80% driven by fossil fuels. It really is the sine qua non of how we live now. We're almost completely dependent on it. And we've understood for a surprisingly long time that burning fossil fuels generate CO2 and methane and can impact the climate. Scientists were actually speculating on this possibility back in the 1880s and 1890s. And by the 1950s, we understood CO2 and fossil fuel burning well enough to predict accurately the changes that it would impose on our atmosphere. So we've known really for three generations that what we're doing is going to endanger the planet and everything and everyone who lives on it. So I'm interested in the fact that knowing this, we charged ahead and fossil fuel companies in particular who wield tremendous influence, not just over our economies, but over our political systems and our financial systems have worked very hard to bury that science and manipulate it and us in ways that encourage us to continue burning fossil fuels at a alarming rate that is having grievous and possibly irreversible results on the quality of our lives and the sustainability of our planetary systems. John, very good luck for the Bailey Gifford Prize. Fire Weather, A True Story from a Hotter World is by John Valiant and is published by Scepter, Hodder and Stoughton. Jennifer A. Homans is an American historian, author and dance critic who had a professional ballet career with the Pacific Northwest Ballet. Her new book is Mr. B, George Balanchine's 20th Century. And again, this is one of the books on the Bailey Gifford shortlist for nonfiction. Very many congratulations to you, Jennifer. 
Thank you very much. How much of a challenge was it capturing the life and indeed the inner life of somebody who is no longer with us? Yeah, that was the the big challenge of the book. It was difficult because he is a man. George Balanchine spent much of his life denying the past and moving on from it. So the records and sources were thin. But on the other hand, those that did exist of his own writings, love letters, are just absolutely powerful and heartbreaking. And then, of course, there are the dances and the dancers themselves who were young at the time. So many are still living. And I interviewed over 100 of them. So there are a lot of voices in this book, a lot of voices coming in to try to unravel the inner life of of this great artist. And it does seem that it was a life of some tragedy. Tell us about some of his personal struggles that you write about in this biography. Yeah, his life was difficult, full of hardship. He was born in 1904, so that when the Russian Revolution came, he was still a child and he was starving and lost in the streets. His family dispersed. He had other experiences of loss throughout his life. He did contract TB in those years, and it it followed him. He was in a Magic Mountain sanatorium in Europe years later and uh, lost a lung and probably should have died, as he often put it. His fifth wife, Tanakil Leclerc, was stricken with polio, one of the epidemics of his time, and still of ours in some places, of course. And this was a an absolute devastating tragedy. She survived, but not as a dancer, that's for sure. So he was always, and this is a theme of the book, loss as a source of great art. And it was at moments of loss that he somehow rallied internally and found inside him a way to create dances of immense beauty and genius. The book is subtitled George Balanchine's 20th Century. And that title is really very important because we are seeing that terribly important century through the lens of Balanchine. What do you think made his his work so extraordinary? And how do you tie that to the times he lived through? I mean, that is the subject of the book. I call it George Balanchine's 20th century because he lived a 20th century life, one that began with with revolution and war, and he lived through the Second World War as well, although he was in the States by that time. It was a story of exile. He was Georgian by by his father's birth, um, Russian by his own birth. The, the struggles of national independence were very important in his family. and to, So this life, even his leaving of Russia into Germany in 1924, as part of the great population movements of the time and the collapse of empire, all of this is the stage of his art. And he he was a real watcher and he watched and absorbed Russia in those revolutionary and war years, Europe in the 1920s, America in the 1930s through his death in 1989. So this was the material of his art. And the main problem that he faced was that he had seen the human body destroyed, crippled in piles of death, how do you make a dance when you've been through that? How do you make a dance that addresses that? 
And it's the, it's the question really of the 20th century for many artists, but it is a question that is especially poignant for somebody who's trying to address the human body itself. And so what he does is he really decenters the human body, takes it off of its groundedness and creates a new way of moving and a new way of understanding the human form. Jennifer, finally, having immersed yourself so deeply within this man, do you like him? Oh, do I like him? I, you know, I lived with him for 10 years writing this book, and it's a strange experience to do that. And I can't, I I don't know if I like him is a strange answer, but it's the only one I can give. I admired him enormously. He could also be extremely cruel. He was somebody who was very remote. I'm not sure that anybody knew him very, very well. He knew a lot of people, but he did not have close friends. He loved women, and there were a lot of women in his life. It's a difficult life. It's a. I tried to stay away from do I like him because I, I couldn't live with him if I had to answer that question. Mm. I, I, it's not that I didn't like him. I admired him, but... I was more interested in trying to understand the inner mechanisms of how you make art out of a politics of despair. Jennifer Homans, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. And congratulations on your shortlisting. All the very best of luck for the prize. Thank you. Mr B, George Bollenshein's 20th Century is by Jennifer A. Homans and it's published by Granter. Jeremy Eichler is an award-winning critic and cultural historian. Since 2006, he served as chief classical music critic of the Boston Globe. Formerly a critic for the New York Times and a contributor to many other national publications, he earned his PhD in modern European history at Columbia University. He is the author of Time's Echo, the Second World War, the Holocaust and the music of remembrance. It's a stirring account of how music acts as a witness to history and a medium of cultural memory in the post-Holocaust world. Jeremy, many congratulations for being on the shortlist of the Bailey Gifford Prize. How did it feel? It was a really exciting moment in the journey of a book that's been with me in some form or another for about a full decade of my life. Tell us about that journey. Well, you know, I was working for over two decades as a music critic, and the whole time, I think, very aware of a certain approach to listening, my own approach, which was to say, very receptive to the kind of profound messages coming through this music, this sort of transmissions from the past, almost, you could say, from these other cultures. And that is really a central idea of Time's Echo, is that it's an approach to music as culture's memory. The book says it's not just we who remember music, it's also music that remembers us, that it transmits these wordless truths from these earlier eras and carries them forward into our world today, you know, if we have the ears to hear them and the interest to learn about them. And that was it for me, that the journey of the book was largely about developing the sensibility, researching it, of course, all the different works I discuss, but then also 
a desire to understand the broader cultures from which these works emerged. And so that is why I ended up broadening my own perspective. I wanted to not only have the tools of a critic available, but also those of a historian. And that's why in the middle, I count it as kind of this book's gestation, my own doctoral training as a cultural historian of modern Europe. And it's based around four composers. Tell us more. The four composers are Arnold Schoenberg, Richard Strauss, Dmitry Shostakovich, and Benjamin Britten. And they're four towering 20th century composers who in some ways stood at four very different windows looking out onto the same catastrophe of the Second World War and the Holocaust. They each had very different experiences. The book also tells the story of the four extraordinary musical memorials that they wrote in the post-war era. And each of these, in its own way, opens up these fascinating windows onto how the memory of the war changed in different places, how these stories were told differently in different times. How can music articulate the horrors of war? Yes, that is a central question that it really takes the full book to explore. One of the things I think we all appreciate about abstract music is that it can speak in these profoundly powerful ways, yet while remaining untranslatable. And I think that there is, in the 19th century, that was sort of an important trope for a lot of romantic writers who celebrated music precisely for those reasons. In the 20th century, that becomes, in its own way, that connects up with the kind of ineffability of the experience of war itself. The fact that in specifically these two horrendous world wars, there is a sense that there is an experience that reaches beyond language, stretches language's ability to describe. And in that sense, there is music waiting to try to not fill the semantic gap, but at least gesture towards it and help us understand. We're at a terrible moment in global politics at the moment. Is there anyone writing this type of music that connects to where we are right now? I think probably there is a number of people writing from the various horrendous conflicts that are, are in our world right now that are capturing what's going on even unconsciously. You know, part of the idea, Adorno famously said that to write poetry after Auschwitz would be barbaric. But he later went back and revised his opinion to say that because the world has outlived its own demise, it needs art as its unconscious chronicle. That's a powerful idea that really informs the entire book. And the notion of art as an unconscious chronicle is also important. The idea to say that it may not even be the person who is out there saying, I'd like to record the sounds of this particular political conflagration. It might just be those out there trying to create authentic works of art that can't help but embody and carry forward something of the current moment. Jeremy, you mentioned that this is not only a, a book of history, it's not only a book of music. Tell us more. Yes, it is a book really that tries to also have an orientation to the present and very much to the future. When we have a memorial, it's really, it's um, all memorials make a choice about carrying forward values from the past that we wish to be preserved and that which is preserved can be built upon. So in that sense, every memorial points also towards the future. And that's very much the orientation of the book, looking forward and asking what in this long tradition of humanism and, you know, enlightenment values that were ruptured by, so ruptured by the war, what, 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 what are these sort of lost moments of hope and, and possibility that we wish to carry forward? 
Jeremy, many thanks for speaking to us and very good luck to you for the final prize. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much, Georgina. Times Echo, The Second World War, The Holocaust and the Music of Remembrance by Jeremy Eichler is published by Alfred A. Knopf in North America and Faber in the UK. And the book is currently being translated into six languages. Tanya Brannigan writes editorials for The Guardian. She spent seven years as its China correspondent reporting on politics, the economy and social changes. Her works also appeared in The Washington Post. This book, Red Memory, Living, Remembering and Forgetting China's Cultural Revolution, is her debut and it is absolutely fascinating. Tanya, congratulations on your shortlisting for the Bailey Gifford Prize. So well deserved. Well, thank you very much. Of course, your work put you in a position where you could write this book. You spent a lot of time in China. Um, did you ever think it would get to this point? No, absolutely not. In fact, I spent a lot of time writing it, not knowing if it would get published at all. I never actually managed to sell the proposal, which is normally how nonfiction is done. And I just went ahead and wrote the book because I guess I, I wanted to understand the answers to the questions I had, really. Mm. Well, it outlines the Cultural Revolution and what happened during that time, but it takes us right back in history. It lets us understand the Long March. And of course, it brings us right forward to the present day. And you did all this, though, through interviewing various people who were there at the time. Tell us more about the structure of the book. It's very much told through the stories of those who wanted to remember the Cultural Revolution or perhaps who couldn't help remembering the Cultural Revolution in many cases at a time when really everybody else wanted to forget, either because of personal trauma or because of the political repression. It's very much a gap, an absence in China today. And yet the Cultural Revolution is present underneath everything. And these are the people who are actually prepared, even feeling the need to speak about it and to keep it alive in people's memories. Such extraordinary individuals. You spoke to people who'd been part of the Red Guards. You spoke to musicians. You spoke to academics. You even spoke to some people who were lookalikes. Yes, absolutely. And I really wanted to capture the fact that for all its horrors, and they were immense, there is also a great feeling of nostalgia, as odd as it may seem to us, among many people when they look back at the Cultural Revolution. And so while many people remember it because they want to say, you know, this must never happen again, or these are the things we need to be aware of, or perhaps because they bear a tremendous amount of guilt themselves, there are other people who see it perhaps as a time of greater equality, of a time of freedom for young people. And so there is this very peculiar nostalgia. And actually, that nostalgic aspect is the one element that's really sort of allowed or almost encouraged at times within China today. You talk about guilt. And of course, there is so much, I suppose, intergenerational trauma still held by those families. Immense. And perhaps particularly, really, because it isn't discussed. There are so many cases where people will say to you, I know that something terrible happened and I don't know what it is. But also, of course, because there were so many cases in which people turned on those who were very close to them, workmates, friends and members of their family. In one case that I write about in the book, a man denounced his own mother and he was around 17 at the time, he has carried the guilt of that denunciation and her execution as a result throughout his life. 
And I think it's almost impossible for us to imagine what that must mean to somebody. And what do you think the Cultural Revolution means today? As you say, it's not really discussed in China, but are we seeing something akin to that happening under Xi Jinping? I think the Cultural Revolution has shaped China in every way you can imagine, from its economy through to personal relationships and certainly its politics. Looking at now, we certainly see a lot of Chinese people who feel that there are resonances, actually not so much the people in my book, but perhaps more recently, particularly since the COVID, the very um, draconian zero COVID policies, people feeling it's a time again of the party interfering in your personal life, in business, in the arts, in all these realms that had sort of retreated from to a great extent. And in this immense concentration of political power, this sort of burgeoning personality cult in some ways around Xi Jinping, the current leader, certainly not on the way that there was in Mao's time, but definitely that sort of personalization of power and even the sort of hostility to the outside world. And so people definitely see parallels. There are big divergences as well. I mean, the most obvious one being that Xi Jinping, unlike Mao, is somebody who abhors chaos and turmoil and all the things that Mao relished in unleashing. So there are very profound differences. But yes, people have certainly seen echoes. Tanya, very many thanks for talking to us. Congratulations for making the shortlist and all the very best for the big prize. Thank you so much. That's Tanya Brannigan there, who is the author of Red Memory, Living, Remembering and Forgetting China's Cultural Revolution, published by Faber and Faber. Christopher Clark, congratulations on being shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. I wonder if we could start by you telling us a little bit about your book, which is called Revolutionary Spring, Fighting for a New World, 1848 to 1849. Why was that such a transformative period? Well, when I became a modernist, and it was a bit like a religious conversion from medievalism to the modern, I, I moved to Cambridge, I got a scholarship to Cambridge, and I started studying. And my, my kind of historical home became the 19th century. And if you if you work in and, and live in your thoughts in the 19th century, it becomes clear after a while that the kind of pulsing, mysterious heart of this century is the revolutionary upheaval of 1848-49. It's completely unique in the history of Europe. There had never been, and has never been since, a genuinely European cascade of tumults such as took place in 1848 and that already made it interesting though when i first encountered these revolutions at school i remember the teacher explaining to us boys these uh, these revolutions were complicated and they were a failure and i remember thinking oh that's a very unattractive combination but in fact, it turns out that though they were complicated, I don't want to in any way revise that finding. I don't think that the word failure does justice to them because they're, they're so profoundly impactful. They change everything. Nothing and no one who passes through this collision chamber of revolution in the middle of the 19th century is the same when they come up. Mm, and particularly for women. Women are central to this revolution. And one of the interesting things about it is that the visual record of the revolution, which often involved a kind of hot take of scenes on the streets, is full of women. Women on barricades, women fighting, women pouring shot for the men to use as ammunition, bringing food for the fighters, but also tending to the wounded in virtually every conceivable role. Yet in the written record of the revolutions, they start to disappear from view. 
And that's a very, that already I found a very interesting discrepancy. And the, the fact is that once they had established themselves, the new revolution, well, once the revolution had sort of stabilized itself to some extent, the men who controlled the process pushed women out of the engine rooms of the revolutionary process. They weren't allowed to be members of parliament. They couldn't even vote. Nobody really was arguing for an extension of the franchise to include women. They weren't allowed into male political groupings, either political associations and so on. So it remained a men-only world. I think that the men gave the women a sort of unintended favor in pushing them out of the political process because they created a distance and detachment that enabled them to write about the revolutions as men simply couldn't. Men saw other revolutionaries as friends, enemies, liars, cheats, betrayers, and all the rest of it. Uh, women saw the revolutionaries as men engaged in conflict with each other, and they were able to step back and provide a kind of an account of what was going on, an analysis and a quality of witness that is quite unique. Mm. Finally, Chris, I wonder, this is a very difficult thing to do, I know, but for those who haven't yet read the book, how would you sum it up? Although they are complicated, and the book tries to do justice to the complication, which is where all the interest is, nevertheless, the the sort of contour, the shape of the narrative is quite straightforward. In in spring, there's a massive wave of revolutions. Everybody's euphoric. It feels like everybody agrees. The whole of society is on the move. The old powers slip out of their positions of of dominance and seem to leave the the ground to to the new revolutionary challenges. So that's it's it's party time. Then comes summer, and it turns out not everybody at the party wants the same things, that the dreams of one group are the nightmares of another. And that's when the revolution begins to fight itself. You get different um, different strands and fractions engaged in, in struggle with each other. And then in the autumn, two things happen. The narrative divides. It sort of goes into a fork. On the one hand, the counter-revolutions really begin in earnest, the shutting down of the revolution in Vienna, in Berlin, and other places. And at the same time, a second wave of revolutions breaks out, the Revolution 2.0, I call it, where uh, now dominated mainly by the left rather than by moderate liberals, revolutionaries push to for a last effort to transform the system. And then in the summer of 1849, those efforts too brought down. They're suppressed by armed force in many different parts of Europe. Christopher, huge luck to you in the Bailey Gifford Prize. Christopher Clark's book is Revolutionary Spring, Fighting for a New World, 1848 to 1849. It's published by Alan Lane. Hannah Barnes holds a prestigious reputation as a celebrated journalist within the BBC's premier current affairs show Newsnight. With a career spanning over 15 years, she's honed her skills in investigative and analytical journalism, dedicating several years to reporting, editing and producing numerous esteemed long-form programmes and documentaries under the BBC umbrella. Her book is Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's gender service for children. It's published by Swift Press. Hannah, many congratulations on your shortlisting. How does that make you feel? Completely honoured and absolutely over the moon. It's It's been a very difficult story to cover. It's taken a huge amount of effort and, and for it to be recognised by the most prestigious non-fiction prize in the UK as a piece of balanced but thorough investigative journalism is just more than I could have hoped for. And how did the story first come to your attention? Slowly, actually. There wasn't sort of one point, but I think I first came across this as a topic back in around 2017. I was off on maternity leave at the time with my oldest child and there was a documentary on 
BBC television, actually, about a gender clinic in Canada. And there'd been a lot of arguments over the clinic and the way it was practising. And it just struck me as fascinating that you could have these very different children, very different families experiencing this very intense distress around their gender identity. And yet they had very, very different outcomes and there were very different views on on what might work best for any given individual child. So that was when I first came across it. And also, I think Janice Turner in The Times had started writing around that time. And then really, it wasn't until a report was leaked sort of at the end of 2018 by a psychiatrist called Dr. David Bell. And now he worked in the, the wider Tavistock and Portman Trust. And essentially, 10 members of staff from the Gender Identity Development Service had gone to him with some quite serious worries and concerns they had over the care being offered to this group of children and young people. And I saw that and I didn't know if what they were saying was true or not, but I felt it deserved looking into further. And there didn't really seem to be many in the media looking into this area of healthcare, really. So that's where that's where it started at BBC Newsnight. So how did that then morph from a piece of television into this impeccably researched non-fiction book? Well, together with my colleague at the time, Deborah Cohen, we produced four films for Newsnight, four, four major films and, and a few smaller pieces. And I or we together wrote several articles. We did a radio documentary. But it got to the point that I knew far more than... I could ever get on screen and not not for being blocked or anything like that, but there's always more than you can ever put on air. And I think I got to the point where I felt I couldn't not write this book because I had all this information in my head and I felt that it was a story that had to be told. And at that point, we had no idea that the service would be earmarked for closure. We didn't know that an independent review would, you know, quite severely criticise the status quo. So I had all this information. I thought it needed to get to get out into the, the wider world. And actually, some of the clinicians wanted that too. They wanted these conversations to be happening in society more widely outside of the gender clinic, because ultimately, this is about providing the best possible care to some very vulnerable young people. But the discussion out in the wider world tends to be extremely toxic when it comes to this yeah. this area. How did you avoid that? And how do you avoid taking a stance? I mean, you, you never say within the book whether you think it's a good or a bad thing. Well, I guess in a way, I was fortunate that at the time, I was a BBC journalist until very recently, until last week, in fact, I was a BBC staff member. And I'm now going on to do another job for another organisation. So we are bound by impartiality. And that's a a value that I took very seriously and I still do. But I think actually, even if I hadn't been at the BBC, I probably wouldn't have changed much because I don't think it's the job of a journalist to tell people what to think. I've tried to present the evidence in the most thorough and fair way that I possibly can, including both positive and negative stories, because that is what has happened. And it's up for other people to make their own minds up. Mm. And I think I haven't managed to avoid the toxicity in in its entirety. Of course, you know, people have criticised me and, and I get the odd abusive comment. But I think what we always try to do at the BBC and what I've tried to do with the book is approach this in the way that I think it is. You know, this is a health story. It's not about challenging people's identities or 
saying that people do not have the right to transition that is something that i and and, and together with my colleagues have never questioned it's about whether part of the nhs is providing safe good evidence-based healthcare to this group of young people and questioning that doesn't mean you have to question those people themselves and that's the approach i've taken and i think that's hopefully why the book has been recognized in the way that it has hannah many congratulations on your shortlisting and thank you so much for speaking to us Thank you for having me. That's Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's gender service for children by Hannah Barnes. It's published by Swift Press. You've been listening to a special episode of Meet the Writers. The winner of this year's Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction will be announced on the 16th of November. This episode was produced by Tamsin Howard with production assistance from Mariella Bevan. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Thank you.